Welcome to Global Unity Radio. I'm Elliot Baev. In this episode, we speak with Rupert Reed. Rupert is a professor of philosophy, was a member of the Green Party where he sat as an elected city councilor for a number of terms, and most recently was instrumental in the founding of Extinction Rebellion, the youth-led global environmental movement. Rupert has written for The Guardian and The Independent and co-written pieces on the precautionary principle with Nassim Taleb. In this episode, we focus on his new book, Parents for a Future, as well as the movement behind it. As we discussed in the episode, one of the unique things about creating a movement of parents is that unlike so many other ways of bringing people together, it really crosses so many divisions from race to gender to nationality, and in this way offers some new hope for what we can all do together, notwithstanding that not only do parents have a vested interest in the future, but as we discuss, in many ways, we're all parents. If it's true that it takes a village to raise a child, then we are all responsible for the next generation. And this mindset can really lead, hopefully, to a, a new way of seeing ourselves and our responsibility to each other and the earth and future generations. I thoroughly enjoy this conversation. I think you will, too. Thank you for listening. Enjoy the episode and make sure to go to parentsforafuture.org where you can grab a copy of Rupert's book and head to globalunity.org where you can sign up for a mailing list so you can be one of the first to hear more of the vision, mission, and ways in which you can participate. Enjoy the episode. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining. We are here to speak with Rupert, Rupert Reed, who's got an amazing history of impact and activism, uh, as well as academia, uh, a lot of accomplishments within academia. He was a Green Party campaigner, part of the Extinction Rebellion, has written for The Independent and The Guardian, as well as being featured uh, on multiple BBC programs, and has been an outspoken advocate for change for a long time in many different forms. And has recently written Parents for a Future, which is the main focus of today, but we're going to get into much of the bigger picture of Rupert's story first. So I appreciate everyone joining uh, for System Changer Spotlight as part of Global Unity. So we're going to get right in. Rupert, before we get started, uh, or before we dive into Parents for a Future specifically, I'd love to have you give us a bit of a background on how you got started in activism in the first place. Well, thanks, Elliot. Thanks for the thoughtful introduction. Thanks for the wonderful opportunity of speaking with you here today. I really, really appreciate it. So to answer your question, well, interestingly, you're talking to me from the US. I'm here in my home country of the UK. When I had done my undergraduate degree at, uh, at Oxford and was continuing my education in the United States, doing a PhD at Rutgers, that is actually when I started to become more politically radicalized. And the way it really happened is that I found the experience of, uh, of seeing the reality of America at first hand pretty disturbing. Living in New Jersey, I was very disturbed by the, the incredible devastation of the, so much of the landscape there by, by industry. I was amazed to find the degree to which America was a... Uh, still a, a racially divided as well as economically divided country. And in a number of ways like this, really, things, trends that I've been disturbed by in the UK 
were just even more pronounced in the US. And, you know, a lot of things that happen in the US, they come to the UK five or 10 or 15 years later. That's the way it often works. So I kind of felt a thinking, this was in the, around the start of the 1990s, kind of felt a thinking, gosh, is this really the future? Uh, it doesn't look good. Um, and, yeah, that's what propelled me to become much more politically uh, assertive and turned on than I had done uh, up until uh, that point. Uh, and that's how I got involved with um, animal rights, direct action, and that's how I got involved with uh, Earth First. I departed in Redwood Summer, defending the giant redwoods in the 1990s, uh, and so on. And so, yeah, that's how I got started with activism. And it, so it sort of it sort of went in train in a way with my uh, with my the continuation of my academic uh, education and career. Um, but it was only much, much more recently that I started to actually write in a serious way as a philosopher about these kinds of things. So it's really only in the last uh, 10 or 15 years that my two great loves, philosophy and environmental politics, have, uh, have come together and joined together. And, and that's what's been at the root of most of the, uh, most of the books that I've done in the last few years. And can you tell us, uh, before we uh, dive too much deeper, just to give everyone a little background on your work as a philosopher uh, or uh, on the academic side, just for a little context? Yeah, yeah, yeah. so I did a lot of, uh, I, I'm quite diverse as a philosopher. I've, I've written a lot of philosophy of science, written some philosophy of literature, um, philosophy of film, philosophy of language, philosophy of mental health. And some of that has now fed into my work. So obviously, uh, my work in, in this sort of green area, obviously, there's a connection with philosophy of science, for example, because it's about thinking about the nature of, say, climate science and what we can know about the, the climate and how that can influence uh, what we can do and what we and, and how what we don't know can and should influence what we do, which is at the root of a lot of my work on the precautionary principle. Uh, for example, which has been very important to me in recent years, including the papers I've written on that with uh, Nassim Taleb, author of The Black Swan. So, yeah, um, quite diverse, uh, and some of it um, very much relating to the kind of stuff that I do now. Wonderful. And and how did, so you mentioned that it's only in the last few years that, that you started writing more or perhaps even longer that you've started writing more seriously about these philosophies or your philosophy around the environment and activism what was it that prompted was there a catalytic moment that prompted uh you to take action in that form no that was really more of a gradual process so like i say in the 90s i was uh, i was politically radicalized by my time in the, in the u.s i came back to the uk and that process kind of gradually continued uh, I started to get seriously involved in the Green Party in the UK around the year 2000, uh, became a, uh, an elected Green Party councillor, served two terms in that capacity, stood for Parliament for the Greens. And all the time, of course, the environmental crisis is gradually getting worse, uh, and I'm getting more and more concerned uh, about it starting to have terrible dreams about it and all sorts of things like that, which perhaps some uh, listeners are familiar with. Uh, and then there was a, a sort of step change in my development, really, uh, about four years ago. 
which was I was doing some leafing for the Green Party one day, uh, and completely to my surprise, this this thought, these four words, just flipped into my head out of nowhere. It seemed to me, except a kind of vague sense of sort of uh, depression and and disconsolateness about the way things were going, and the words were, "This civilization is finished." Uh, and this was a very dramatic thought to have. Um, I was very disturbed by it. I decided, as it's the wont of an academic, to start writing about it, and that's what I did. Uh, and I wrote a paper which was unlike anything I'd ever written before because it was so much more, quote, pessimistic, unquote. Um, I was really not sure what to do about it, if anything. I shared it carefully with some uh very trusted friends said, look, I'm really worried this is just going to demoralize people or that I'm going to get attacked for saying it, but this is what I'm now thinking, this is what I'm now uh, seeing, this shocking realization has come to me, what do you think? And the response was incredibly positive. Basically, people said to me, look, Rupert, actually, this looks like this is possibly the most important thing you've ever written. It's, it's reaching a new level of sort of honesty and authenticity. And that's the way it had felt to me as well. So obviously... I was encouraged by those responses, but still felt kind of guarded about it. Uh, so, well, long story short, I went through a process of first publishing um, This Civilization is Finished uh, anonymously. That went okay. I gave it as a talk with a lot of trepidation. That went really very well. People responded incredibly positively, uh, which is, you know, really not what I'd been expecting for obvious reasons. Um, I started saying these things to my students, and they started saying they started saying to me things like, "This feels like the first time anyone, any adult in authority, has really leveled with us about how bad things are." So eventually, um, I gave it as a as a full scale um, major uh, lecture at uh, Cambridge University. So this is now um, the uh, autumn of twenty eighteen. Um, and uh, this talk called "The Civilization, the Civilization Is Finished" went uh, went viral, and it and the the subsequent versions of it, uh, which I started to give in uh, twenty nineteen, um, have been viewed hundreds of thousands of times on on YouTube and so on, which obviously is quite good and slightly unusual for a really long, <laughs> in depth and uh, somewhat painful. Uh, uh, lecture, and in case people are not sure what exactly I mean by saying this civilization is finished, let me be very clear. I don't mean that we are bound to collapse. What I mean is that the only way we now get to avoid eco-induced societal collapse is by changing our civilization fundamentally and rapidly. Uh, that transformation is coming. The only question is, are we going to manage to do it ourselves or is it going to be done to us by, as it were, an enraged Gaia? Uh, so that's the essence of this civilization is finished, which appeared as a book then in 2019 and became a bit of a sort of, well, I don't know, sort of cult classic, I suppose you could say, of a small kind. Uh, and of course, around this time in uh, in autumn 2018, it's also the exact same time that Extinction Rebellion was uh, was just starting to emerge on the scene. And as soon as I found out about the birth of Extinction Rebellion, I was enormously excited. 
got in touch with one of the founders, Gail Bradbrook, that same day and had a long, amazing conversation. She invited me to help launch Extinction Rebellion, which I then did by putting together with others the letter that was published in The Guardian that launched the movement onto the public scene. And by emceeing with Gail the launch event um, outside the House of Parliament in uh, October 2018, uh, when we blocked the access to Houses of Parliament by uh, by means of vehicles, and uh, that was the first direct action we did. And so, yeah, that's really when my life kind of really changed in quite a significant way, when I did the This Civilization Has Finished talk and got involved in the launch of Extinction Rebellion, and, uh, yeah, it's never been quite the same since. And I got to watch that after the protest you were invited I. I... I think it was maybe Channel 5. I remember you using that as an opportunity to really share share the message behind Extinction Rebellion powerfully and, and then invite, I believe they were politicians, in for some dialogue. Could you just tell us a bit about how yeah. that all that unfolded and, and what came of that moment and maybe more of the story of your involvement with Extinction Rebellion and even some yeah. background for those who might not be familiar? Sure. So Extinction Rebellion basically is was founded with the idea that the environmental movement had not been radical enough, not been honest enough, uh, not addressed the way in which we are causing an extinction. Uh, they, they call it the sixth mass extinction, biologists call it that, um, and are ourselves possibly even in danger of extinction if we really don't clean up our act in a very significant way. And so the idea is, well, governments that are leading us off this cliff can't really be legitimate. So it should be okay for us to rise up in rebellion against them, provided that rebellion is done in the same kind of traditions of, uh, of nonviolence and non-harm that you saw famously in Gandhi's movement or Martin Luther King's or uh, a number of other famous examples through history, of course. And so that's what I think rebellion uh, is and um, yeah in spring 2019 it really took off in the UK especially and I was involved in the Extinction Rebellion political strategy team our real task was to get ready for conversing with the government should the opportunity arise and I must tell you it didn't seem entirely uh, likely or realistic that it was going to arise that the government were going to invite a, a you know, ragtag group of uh, environmentalists to come and speak with them. But when we did the April rebellion in 2019 in London, well, the response was amazing. And, and yeah, you can, you can watch many of us who took part in that on, on many channels, etc. Um, you can watch that on, on YouTube. You're referring, I think, to the Channel 5 thing that I did, um, which was focused on um, uh, our children and the way that the school climate strikers are begging for their lives um, and that Extinction Rebellion is an attempt to, to rise up in response to that for adults to really take responsibility. Uh, and the government felt some pressure from this and to the surprise, really, in the end, honestly, of many of us, they uh, they became willing to to talk. And I arranged the uh, with a bit of help from Greta Thunberg, who pinned them down in public, 
I arranged the uh, the meeting with uh, Michael Gove, the then Environment Secretary, um, which took place um, at the end of that uh, uh, period of rebellion. And straight after that, the British Parliament declared a climate and environment emergency. So it's an exciting time, and that declaration sort of echoed around the world. And Extinction Rebellion, of course, has been active uh, at that time and since in in many other countries, including the US. And yeah, there's been a, a, a permanent shift in the in the discourse and in the status of concern for climate and ecology, I would argue, as a result of Extinction Rebellion, combined with, of course, um, Greta Thunberg and the uh, climate school strikes. Uh, and yeah, that's really um, a key part of the background to where we are uh, now and to whatever hope there is of uh, the right kind of stuff happening uh, in the next few years. Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> before we uh, dive too too deep in, or before we shift gears to parents for a future. Um, so you, you mentioned the discourse has evolved uh, in a positive way. Uh, did you see through this uh, uh, stating that there is a climate emergency? Did you see actual change start to take place, or 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 what did you see beyond just discourse? Yeah. That, of course, is the $64 million question. Uh, It's crucial. And, well, as my colleague Greta has said, the actual amount of real change on the ground is still pretty small. We've had an awful lot of discourse, and we've had some laws passed, you know, like uh, in the UK, a law committing us to net zero carbon by 2050, for example. That, too, occurred um, right after Extinction Rebellion's uh, rebellion uh, in 2019. Um, but how much has actually changed on the ground? There are some things one can point to. For example, it l- looks like um, some of what's happened around the cost of flying in Scotland um, has been pretty directly influenced by uh, Extinction Rebellion. Um, that's quite a specific example. It's also often, of course, difficult to really pin down political changes to um, particular movements or um, influences. Often politicians don't like to admit why they've changed their mind on something. They often don't like to admit they've changed their mind at all. Um, So it's not surprising that there isn't too much that can be directly attributed to these change-making movements. But it is certainly disappointing that there hasn't been a widespread change. Um, And... I guess it's fair to say that this is one of the reasons why over the last several months I've moved on from Extinction Rebellion myself and I'm I'm taking a somewhat different uh, approach now Um, and I'm I'm sure we'll get to this soon. On the one hand, um, I am arguing for um, a bigger, more inclusive, in a certain sense, more moderate movement to try to fill the space and use the space that the agenda-changing uh, effect of Extinction Rebellion and others has had, uh, and that includes my uh, my call for a much broader uh, mobilization, if you will, of, of concerned parents. Um, and on the other hand, I've also put in an increased emphasis on the need to take adaptation seriously, because the tragic reality is that it was already horribly late in 2018, 2019, to be really moving 
on prevention or so-called mitigation of the of the climate and ecological emergency and well we're now in 2021 and I'm sure we've been given a little bit of inadvertent help by the coronavirus to to not blow all our climate targets sky high but the signs are that we're bouncing back towards so-called business as usual when actually what we need is a thoroughly transformed normal so the bitter truth is that not enough change at all is happening on the ground and certainly at the policy level and the bitter truth is that it's too late to prevent dangerous climate change it's here uh, uh, we've seen our weather starting to spin out of control all around the world. We've seen bizarre, unprecedented things in the last uh, four, five, six years. Um, very, very concerning. And what it means is we're going to have to uh, adapt. Um, and that is not giving up, but that is facing um, the reality that it just just doesn't wash anymore to say, oh, look, if we all pull together, we can stop this problem. No, the problem is here. The genie is out of the box. So I, I have moved on from Extinction Rebellion to a considerable extent, although I'm still very much an ally of, of, of XR and still sometimes give talks at XR events and so forth. Um, but I've, I've moved on because I, I think that we need to be talking about and doing um, adaptation more than Extinction Rebellion uh, has been uh, doing and talking about. And because I think we need um, a larger more moderate uh, movement that will be attractive to more people. And I think that's possible now. I think that um, the uh, Youth Climate Strikers and XR have created a space which new organizations can and should move into. And, and that's a central area now for the work that I'm trying to accomplish. Right on. That's a good place to <clears throat> kind of take us into or start to take us into parents for a future and, and you know even the question of what actual change have you seen is in a sense an unfair one because the changes we need if they were to take place within this system are so long term and and i appreciate your point that we need uh really broad systemic uh change yeah. and, and even a, a yeah. whole new system um yeah. so talk to us about the genesis of parents for a future where the idea came from and, and what the overarching theme is before we kind of dig into some of the particulars. Yeah, so this uh, this new book of my Parents for a Future, it's something I've been working on in a way for a very long time. It emerges from my philosophical work. It, it goes back to thinking I was doing really in the early 2000s um, about how we could create a much broader and deeper mobilization of the climate and nature concerned uh, people around the world. And the idea essentially is this, that what most human beings have in common is that they are parents or they want to be parents, or if not, then their aunts or uncles or they adopt children or their godparents or you see what I'm getting at. Nearly everybody has some kind of very direct and very meaningful connection to the next generation. And the thought I had was, well, look, surely that iterates, that carries forward into the future. In other words, if our love for our children is as absolutely central to our lives and the meanings of those lives, 
as we say it is, then we have to be in a position to, as much as possible, ensure that that kind of love can carry on. In other words, that our children can get to share their love with their children too. And you see where this is heading. It heads off into the sunset. It heads off into the distant future. And of course, family trees, if you look at a family, if you look at your own family tree or any family tree, they get larger and larger as they go forward in time, right? They expand. Um, so anybody's descendants are likely to gradually be more and more numerous and cover more and more of the earth. Now, this, of course, is not an argument for having uh, more children, right? Uh, and in fact, uh, ironically, you, you might say, I myself decided a long time ago not to have children because as I think an increasing number of us are realizing that the best way we can safeguard the, the children of the world that there are and that there will be um, on a personal basis is potentially not to add even more uh, numbers to them. Um, for me, my, uh, my nephews and nieces are very important uh, in my life. Anyway, the, the point is not to say go forth and multiply. The point is simply to observe that over time, people's descendants are typically more numerous and typically um, spread around wider zones of this planet. And what this means is that really caring for your own children translates into really caring for distant future generations across the whole world because you're not you can't really succeed in caring for your children if they're not able to care for their children and so on and so on and of course what that means this is the argument of the book that i'm giving to you here really in a nutshell what that means is that we have to be serious about putting in place protection for distant future generations around the world what that means is that we've got to protect our ecosystems. We've got to protect this world. We've got to protect the earth. Because to the best of our knowledge, it's not going to be possible for future people to flourish if the earth is not flourishing. So without having to care about the environment, without having to care for animals or trees or anything, it turns out that just by virtue of caring for your own children, you're committed to caring for nature, for trees, for, for animals, and into the distant future, moreover. So really, the essential argument of my book, Parents for a Future, is that by virtue of being a parent, or as I say, an aunt or uncle or a grandparent or godparent, whatever it is, by virtue of parenting the future, you're committed to trying to play your part seriously in parenting the whole future. Uh, and that means taking care of the earth. So the conclusion of my book is we need to have a new coming together, a new uprising, a new mobilization of concerned uh, parents uh, mm -hmm. and all concerned adults who have a, a sense of and a stake in the future, especially parents. Parents should come together and think, look, we need to protect the future together. Otherwise, our kids are not going to have a future. In the past, it's been possible for parents to think, well, if I just make sure I look after my kids' health and get them into a good school and so on, then I'm really taking care of them. But that's no longer possible. The situation has changed. The, the earth is in the balance. And that's really the, uh, the, the kicker in uh, Parents for a Future. That's the challenging but I think logically unassailable message of its sort of emotional logic, if you will.
that if you're a parent, you're committed to doing what is necessary to seek to protect the future of the earth. And that almost certainly means for most of us doing a lot more, a lot more than what we're currently doing. That's what the book is about. And well, it's, uh, it's getting quite an interesting uh, response as I expected that it might. Oh, I love so much of what you said and two of my favorite quotes that are that really overlap uh, from the book are caring for your kids means you'll care for the whole human future and yeah. caring for our children isn't real if it doesn't include some level of concern for their children too and just yeah. this this understanding that not only is it future generations that must be in our in our hearts if we care about our children but also the the all the whole of all of our ecosystems or the earth as a whole and and so yeah i think there's some deep wisdom in that uh, that really really speaks to what it is to be a parent uh you know really a caretaker of of the future and yeah. and one thing that for me struck me is basically as soon as i learned the title before i even got into the the content of the book you know there are there are so many wonderful groups working to make change, uh, whether locally or, or more broadly. So often when, when you uh, come together in groups, when you include folks in a particular group, you tend to exclude them from other groups or that you tend to exclude others from that group. But one unique thing about parents is it, it crosses all divisions. Yeah. It crosses divisions yeah. of gender, race, age, and really for me is is an innovation in thinking about how we how we form coalitions so to speak or how we form movements because we are all you know I don't and and you speak to this in in different ways you don't need to be a parent to be a parent you know if if a child yeah. is raised yeah. by a village then we're all parents we're all parents of the yeah. next generation and that responsibility is on all of our shoulders um yeah uh, yeah, I think there's beautiful wisdom in that. Go ahead. Well, thank you so much for that really lovely response and summation, Elliot. I think you've absolutely got it there. You've absolutely got what I was trying to do. And yeah, this can give us some kind of hope in the desperate situation that we're in, it seems to me. That, that here, and it hasn't been fully tapped yet, uh, it really hasn't, uh, is an extraordinary basis for... Well, the project that uh, you call in your work, Elliot, Global Unity, a way of coming together um, across barriers, across divisions, across identities. It seems to me that if there is going to be a future, it's not going to be a future in which we're more and more balkanized from each other in separate uh, identities or kind of culturally warring uh, units. Uh, it's going to be a future in which we find um, our unity, find our essential common interest which is very real um and find a, and refine our nature let's remember what we are we're, we're human beings we're mammals what are we if we don't take care of our offspring um we, we've failed in in what we ourselves judge and rightly so to be an absolutely central category perhaps for many people the central category um of our lives so yeah it's a it's a, a basis for a new kind of hope and for as i say potentially a broader uh kind of uh, movement uh now as you implied also there are elements of this that already exist 
So, for example, there is an excellent um, international organization called Parents for Future, which is modeled on Fridays for Future, the, uh, the uh, acronym that the school climate strikers uh, most often uh, use. I think because each of the words began with S, I think that's why they called it Fridays for Future rather than Fridays for a Future. Um, and um, these organizations very much deserve our support or, or involvement. And what I'm really hoping, hoping is that my book might play a, at least a small role in helping to catalyze this kind of growth and this, in this kind of moment. Um, and, the, and it really is a very crucial moment that we're sitting in here. So if you look at the coronavirus crisis, for instance, uh, which has sucked up such a lot of attention, um, and uh, if we look at uh, where that now leaves us, we're of course facing in most of the world an attempt to, quote, rebuild, unquote, um, economies in response to the crisis. Now, if that rebuilding, if the post-COVID reset, as it's sometimes called, occurs in a way which is anti-green, and there are many signs that it is doing so or that it will do so, as well as some optimistic signs. If it occurs in a way that is anti-green, well, it's really a kind of game over, to be honest. The, the, the hope that some of us still cherish that the 2020s might see a, a great turning, a great transformation, that hope will be dashed. So this is a very, very important moment. And I think it's a moment at which any parent listening, and as you say, actually, Elliot, actually, we're, we're kind of all parents in this. Um, that any parent should be thinking something like this. So in the coronavirus crisis, we took care of our old people, yeah? We did our best to try to reduce the immense uh, suffering that they were threatened with at the hand of the hands of the virus. And many of them have died, but many more would have died if it hadn't been for the way that we did actually, to some real extent, pull together in this uh, in this crisis um, and act responsibly and, uh, and we were willing to give things up like, you know, travel as normal and so on and so forth. Well, that's the same kind of thing that we need to do now with the climate and ecological emergency. We need to do it bigger and deeper and for longer. And we need to do it for our children. So we've, we've sacrificed for our elders. Are we willing also to sacrifice for our young people? And once you put it like that, uh, surely we are, right? Surely uh, our elders are very, very important to us. Absolutely, of course. Our fathers, mothers, and elders arguably should get even more respect in our society than, than they in fact do. Elders often have more respect, for example, in indigenous or peasant cultures than they do in our own. And that's something that should change. But at, at least an old person has lived a pretty full life in most cases, right? Whereas there's something peculiarly terrible and unacceptable to us, and rightly so, I think, about a disease which, as some past pandemics have done, takes our five-year-olds, our 10-year-olds, our 15-year-olds, and so forth. Well, it is the young people who are most at risk from the climate and ecological emergency. That is absolutely clear. That is fact. Because this situation is spinning out of control. And that's what we've got to try to stop or at least slow down and find more effective ways of dealing with it. So as we come out of the coronavirus crisis, as we will do over the next year or two or three, we absolutely must future-proof against the even worse, longer emergency of climate and ecology. And that is a fundamental 
aspect of my message in Parents for a Future. You speak early in the book, and, and incidentally, for everyone in the room, you can get the book on Amazon. It's also on audiobook throttable, and uh, the ebook is very, very affordable. So just want to throw that in. But um, at the hey, can, be- I just, can I just please, yeah. in, Elliot, that uh, do, uh, do, rather than go to Amazon, if you can, uh, go to our own website at www.parentsforafuture.org. Um, and uh, that's actually quite a good place to get the book uh, quite cheaply, unless you want the uh, the audible version. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, you speak early in in the book about our inability to kind of conceive of or conceptualize the future coronavirus. Um, it was an immediate threat that we could yes. uh, that was very kind of in our face. How do you how do you see us? Uh, and and unfortunately. It, it, the climate crisis is becoming more in our face, but I'm, I'm wondering what what are some ways you think we can communicate the the severity of the risk and the uh, scale and scope of the emergency so that it does become more clear to to folks who maybe aren't as involved in spaces like this. Mm. Yeah. Well, again, a very, very important question. So let's start with the uh, with the coronavirus, and let's put it like this: that the some countries in the world responded adequately to the uh, the immediacy of the threat of the coronavirus. Other countries, of course, didn't, uh, even though it was pretty obvious what was coming. Um, so the U.S., the U.K., Brazil; these were among the countries that responded very slowly and poorly. Uh, and as a result, uh, we've got some of the absolute highest death rates in the world. And this is despite the fact that these are rich, so-called developed countries, you know. Um, you'd have expected there to be in a great position to deal with a pandemic, but poor, atrociously poor um, politics and governance led to uh, a terrible uh, cost, which in the case of the UK, I've written about in my uh, my recent uh, ebook um, called... Uh, uh, the uh, timeline of the plague year, um, which is a timeline of uh, what happened with the coronavirus in the UK. So um, even with something that was a fairly immediate threat, still not all of us responded um, sufficiently to it. The climate and ecological emergency is always going to be slower burning. As you say, it's gradually catching up with us, but it's never going to be as in our faces even as the coronavirus, let alone as something you know, still more urgent, like you know, a car that is literally hurtling towards you or something. Everyone knows to jump out of the way of that, but we're not so good at jumping out of the way of a virus, and we're terrible at jumping out of the way of, uh, of uh, a climate breakdown. So if we are waiting uh, until the crisis is, the climate crisis is absolutely in our faces and unavoidable, we're going to be waiting forever, and it's going to sweep us away way before we get to to that point. So we have to find ways of thinking ahead, of being more uh, rational to the, to the extent that we can. And we have to find ways, as your question implied, of communicating the threat in a way which enables people to see it as being something more immediate. Now, on that point, I do have uh, an idea and a suggestion, which I've tried to practice in the last few years, especially actually in my time as an Extinction Rebellion spokesperson, which is that I think we need to talk a lot more about our vulnerability 
and in particular the vulnerability uh, of uh, those who are already vulnerable, but the vulnerability of all of us potentially, uh, to um, the actual effects now and very soon uh, of climate chaos and of um, ecological uh, breakdown and damage. And those effects are things like um, food shortages, uh, which we've had some some real cases of already in the last few years. Those effects are things like um, out-of-control um, fires. Um, look at what's happened in California. Look at what's happened in uh, in Australia uh, in over the last 12 to 18 months. Um, I think we need to be focusing a lot more on these things and a lot less on talking about 2100 or 2050 or even 2030 or 2035. We need to be focusing people's minds on the fact that already now, and we can see this happening, as it were, in real time, already now we're becoming more vulnerable to the climate um, emergency and the broader ecological crisis. And if we don't get serious about this, there could be really, I mean, even much more than we've already had, dire consequences really soon. You know, I don't think it's impossible that there will be serious mass food shortages, including in parts of the so-called developed world, in this decade or even in the next few years. I think that is entirely possible. And that, and that thinking is based partly on the increasingly worrisome uh, scientific, etc., reports which are put out about this. So rather than emphasizing the need for long-term emissions reductions, I think we should be talking more about the global weirding, about the climate chaos and so forth that we are already starting to see. And I think we should be encouraging people to feel into this increasing year on year, right now, increasing vulnerability that we have to this terrible situation that we've created uh, for ourselves. And I think if we focused in that way, and, it, and that, of course, connects with the theme I mentioned briefly earlier, the theme of adaptation, the, the idea that we actually have to try to find ways of living on this world that is now already changed, already climate changed uh, in a dangerous way. If we focus more on that and less only on, as we've, we've tended to do so far, and less only on reducing emissions for everybody's benefit in the future, I think that could be rather game-changing. And one final point on that, here's one of the ways it could be game-changing. I believe, and I've seen some evidence of this, that when we start to talk and or even just think about adaptation, when we start to get serious about responding to the crisis that already exists, when we get serious about create, trying to create resilience right now, um, that itself makes the crisis more psychologically real to us. As long as we're talking about net zero 2050 and laws to try to reduce our carbon emissions and so forth, it doesn't quite seem present. It doesn't quite seem real. It seems somehow deniable to, to nearly all of us, nearly all of the time, not just to the Donald Trumps of this world. But once we start getting into the area of adaptation, then we're admitting that it's real. Then we have to face it. So that is another powerful argument, and I mentioned this in uh, Parents for a Future. That is a powerful argument for for climate organizations and for 
people concerned with what we're doing to our ecology and to nature to spend a little bit more time focusing on the need for us to adapt and on the vulnerability that we are increasingly exposed to, which lies at the basis of that need. First, I think that's really both harrowing and, and important uh, for how we how we focus on the more immediate concerns. You spoke, I think you were speaking to children in one of the videos I saw, and you talked about how drought or extreme heat, maybe a summer or two ago, caused a f- not a food shortage, but uh, one-third of crops or one third of the crop yield was destroyed and that had that heat wave gone into August or September, that that could have had even more catastrophic impacts. And I think, uh, so first, actually, I I wanted to kind of shout out the, your emphasis on talking to children, uh, which of course would have been part of Extinction Rebellion's or your work with Extinction Rebellion. But even before that, you would, I think you had written articles on Leave Our Kids Alone, yeah. anti-advertising to kids. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think, I think that that is so important, but this, I want to, I want to make sure we dig into or, or get to hear a bit more about what I know that Parents for Future finish ends with a proposal. Uh, can you tell us some of the specifics of what that looks like as we're talking about envisioning, you know, a better system or movement towards one? How you propose we we actually get there? Yeah, so it comes back to what I was already getting at a little earlier in our conversation that I see what's happened in the last few years with the with the growth of. Um, ecological awareness, um, certainly relative to where we were a few years ago, that growth being propelled, um, especially by um, Greta Thunberg, by Extinction Rebellion, by David Attenborough also, uh, I see this as having created some space. And this space now needs to be moved into, it needs to be made the most of. Uh, And I think there are many ways in which that could happen. I think people should should be thinking about um, what they can do through their workplaces, for example. I think that's a key area where we can go a lot further than we have done so far, many of us, to uh, achieve um, such leverage, real change, regardless of what governments uh, do. Um, But an absolutely key key area, and this is the point I make at the end of uh, Parents for a Future in my proposal for how to go forward, Absolutely key area is in our role as parents of the future. Uh, And of course, there are multiple overlaps here, right? Most people um, have a workplace and uh, most people have some kind of, nearly everybody has some kind of parental or quasi-parental role. The two could, uh, could overlap. You could express perhaps your concern for the future by what you do um, uh, in your work. Um, and that I make, I make clear at the end of my book, that's a very real possibility. But what I say is that, look, one way or another, we need a kind of broader uh, awakening and um, a broader mobilization of some kind that tries to get parents to, to step up at this crucial time and to see that there is no one riding to the rescue. I mean, look at the recent G7 summit. They came up with some good things. You know, some good stuff, um, some good promises on nature, for example, nature preservation and uh, uh, marine preservation. We'll see if the promises get delivered on. They came up with some good things, but they came up with stuff which is just so far short of where we actually need to be. And you know, Elliot, it's going to be the same, I'm afraid, 
virtually certainly later this year at the crucial climate summit in uh, in Glasgow, the so-called COP in uh, Glasgow in November. Well, parents and and all of us need to be mobilizing in response to this. We need to be recognizing that there are there is no cavalry coming, that this issue cannot be outsourced any longer, that we have to start to take it into our own hands intelligently if there is to be a future. So, yeah, I call for for ways of making the idea of parents for a future uh, into uh, a reality. And, and that could be a sort of bespoke movement or it could be a souped-up version of the wonderful existing organizations already emerging in this sphere. Or it could be things that, uh, that um, um, are happening in areas like what's going on in the workplace or it could be done through through striking potentially you know our children have gone on strike so for goodness sake can't we do the same um these are the kind of possibilities i lay out at the end of the book and i hope it's an agenda that people will find rich and thought provocative and obviously i really hope it's an agenda that people jump on board with and respond to in creative ways ways i probably can't even envision one thing I appreciated about researching some of your work is even even prior to, I believe, even prior to your work on Extinction Rebellion was your, your emphasis on decentralized governance and recognizing that the current democratic systems aren't effective for, for what we need today. And I believe you spoke to citizen assemblies yeah. and uh, the idea of, you know, this identity almost of guardians for future generations and the precautionary principle. Uh, wondering if you could speak about each of those, because I, I feel that, say we did successfully create a move, the kind of movement we need, whether it be yeah. parents exclusively or, or something even broader, but we did have this movement, there's still the question of decision-making and uh, this room alternate has been alternating between decentralized governance and this system changer spotlight to feature folks like yourself. So I'd be curious to hear more of this citizen assembly idea and how that might influence how this movement of parents can actually collectively decide on the direction forward. Yeah, very interesting. So yeah, I believe very strongly that the future is more local, is more decentralized. I think this is bound to be the case. Again, I think it will happen either because we deliberately make it so or it will be forced upon us because if society starts to collapse, it becomes more uh, local than 99 times out of uh, 100. That's just a, a default uh, situation. And also, if we're, if we're talking about um, trying to create local governments, governance, that's, of course, a really good reason to be taking that project seriously, to be sort of insured against the possibility of a kind of partial societal uh, breakdown. If, you, if that's going to occur, you want to have um, more uh, local government governance experience and uh, setups in place ready to, uh, to step into that, uh, that scenario. But, you know, we can also hope that we may be able to avert that scenario and uh, relocalization, um, reducing supply, supply lines, uh, reducing our vulnerability in that way, becoming more self-sufficient and, and uh, self-reliant. Um, these are ways in which we can reduce the risk of uh, societal uh, breakdown. So, yeah, you, you're asking me to, to speak um, in that context um, to these three ideas that I put forward in Chapter 4 of the book, which uh, 
two of which, of course, are not um, original to me. Um, so there's the idea of citizens' assemblies, uh, which has been very prominent in the discourse of Extinction Rebellion, brilliantly so, I think, a brilliant idea for how to do an end run around the weaknesses of our so-called representative democracy uh, and hand um, a significant tranche of power to citizens who get uh, randomly selected, like a jury, it's a sort of super jury, uh, citizens who get randomly selected to to make decisions on our part on the basis of the absolute best information and expertise and with the opportunity for them to deliberate, uh, to really think about their decisions in ways that voters and, for that matter, politicians don't usually deliberate. So I think citizens' assemblies are a crucial wave of the future if there is to be a decent future. And we've already seen evidence of that in a number of places. For example, the successful experiment with citizens' assemblies in Ireland uh, that led to the big constitutional changes there in recent years, such as the uh, uh, abolition of the prohibition against uh, homosexuality. And the very impressive citizens' assembly recently in France that uh, President Macron brought in as a response to the uh, the Gilets Jaunes, the, the Yellow Jackets protest, uh, which was a protest against his um, regressive uh, climate tax that he tried to bring in, the carbon tax he tried to bring in. So he said, all right, look, uh, I've obviously kind of messed up here. Uh, let's have a citizens' assembly to sort out what to do about it. Uh, that was a smart move. Citizens' assembly give politicians, they give politicians cover to do things that politicians in most cases actually no need to be done anyway. Then there's the precautionary principle, which we mentioned briefly before, a key element of my work building on the absolutely vital jurisprudence of the last uh, 50 odd years about how it's vital for states and others to act cautiously with regard to our future, meaning to not recklessly put us at risk in the way that we are put at risk by companies when they seek to operate with very short, uh, short-term horizons in selfish ways to make to make profits. So, a potential uh, example would be some of the pesticides that uh, have been designed or used in recent years, um, which it's suspected are involved in killing bees in large numbers. This is, you know, very, very worrying, as well as being very tragic and sad. So these pesticides, do we have to wait till they are proven categorically to be killing the bees before we move to, to act? No, the precaution principle says we should be able to move ahead of the full information that could come from research. When the situation is really dire and, and urgent, we can't afford to just wait around for the results of the research. So some pesticides have been banned by the European Union in recent years, for example, pending the results of, uh, of research. And the onus has been put on the makers of the pesticide to prove that they're safe rather than for the people who suspect that bees are being killed by these pesticides to have to prove that categorically. The precaution principle, in my opinion, is a vital tool in our having um, a safer and more secure future, which doesn't look likely, but if it's going to happen, uh, it'll happen partly through us being more precautious. And then finally, there's the idea which I developed, which you kindly mentioned, of guardians for future generations, which is a sort of special kind of citizens' assembly, which I think there should be, to take care proactively of, of the interests of 
unborn future generations and of the very young who, of course, are not able to vote yet, not able to stand up in our democratic uh, sphere uh, and uh, look after themselves yet. So this innovation, like citizens' assemblies, should be seen as a kind of way of enhancing our democracy. That a democracy is imperfect if it doesn't uh, include proper opportunities for deliberation and expertise. A democracy is imperfect if it doesn't include the future. Uh, it shouldn't just be about the interests of people who are alive uh, right now. And I would add, I think a democracy is imperfect if it doesn't include the kind of long-termism that is also embedded in the proportionary principle, which should be thought of as a sort of fundamental constitutional principle that's that's inviolate. And, you know, any sound democracy has to have a sound constitution. So, yeah, those are my three top sort of high-level policy recommendations in Parents for a Future. If we were to make those changes, I think they would be quite literally game-changing. I think the chances that we'll do that, again, are slim, but I think we have to try it. What we, what one really doesn't want, right, is to be uh, an old, uh, an old man or an old woman looking back on one's life and saying, maybe if we had tried a bit harder, we could have stopped um, the kind of out of control ecological degradation, which perhaps uh, is going to be coming during the uh, the twenty twenties. So we've got to do what we can. We. We've got to throw ourselves into into the ring while there's still any room for manoeuvre and any chance of the, the transformation that we need. Uh, and these are the kinds of ways in which we could, I believe, bring it about. Well, whether we are likely to bring these in within the current system or not, I think they are a bit of a guiding light to uh, a definition of what an effective system would look like. And, and that's where... You know, I appreciated your emphasis on the need for a, a really a new system because that's very aligned with the whole the whole thesis behind global unity that not only do we need people to come together, but it's not to just affect this current system. We need a new system that is based on new principles or more maybe more to the point, old old principles, uh, yes. but principles that can facilitate sustaining and and a thriving future for all generations to come yes. so um i want to make sure we we open it up to those in the audience to to come up and uh ask questions make comments um but any anything we didn't get to cover or any thoughts you'd like to share before we do well no except just just one point on on that thing that you mentioned there about in a way, this is about going back to the future or really learning from the past, because I think that's such an important point. There have been civilizations which were more intelligently long-termist than ours. Uh, a lovely example is the seventh generation rule practiced by some Native American tribes that said, as you may know, that any major decision should be assessed for its impact on the seventh generation from now. Now, just imagine if we were to bring that into our system. And, and by contrast, ask yourself, you know, when was the last time that you heard a politician on the stump saying, well, you know what I'm really concerned about here today is thinking about how things are going to be here in 150 years' time. You know, that's what we've got to focus on. It never happens, right? Uh, and that just shows you that what, the kind of thing which is missing uh, from um, our system. Uh, and, uh, yeah, that's the kind of uh, ruling philosophical idea, if you will, 
which I would love to see us trying to uh, contribute to at this time when we so badly need it. Well, I think it's not just that that long-termism is missing. I think even more to the point, it's incentivized against. With four-year election cycles, politicians <clears throat> are can't be thinking long-term because they have to be thinking about what's going to get them re-elected in the next four years. So, um, And this is where so much of the thinking behind what a new, better system would look like has has been focused on what are some better incentive structures that, uh, you know, even when you were speaking to the precautionary principle and the, uh, we have to make sure that the pesticide will not harm bees or other animals or, or humans before putting it out rather than uh, retroactively uh, pulling it back once we discover that it does. Well, why is anyone doing the opposite. It's because the producers want to, because the producers are incentivized to make the money uh, that they'll earn by selling it. And so are thus also incentivized to lobby, to push it through and to diminish regulations and, and maybe more insidiously are incentivized to, to think of the regulations as flawed uh, because of the incentive structures that focus them on how do we make the most profit as soon as possible. So um, I'd love to uh, hear any reflections on incentives, but I wanted to also take the opportunity to invite anyone in the audience who had any comments or questions for Rupert uh, on anything we've discussed or any ideas you have uh, to come on up and and share but uh and we'll we'll bring you up shortly feel free to put your hand up but rupert uh any any thoughts on incentives whether in this system or a better system well look elliot i totally agree with what you just said of course uh and uh, the incentives we've got in our um political economy are in many cases all all wrong there are so many examples we could give of this uh one very important one is the discount rate right it's a little bit technical but it's so important um it's very shocking to some people when they find out about it that um there is a a rate at which economists discount the interests of future generations each year that goes by they say it's a little bit less important uh, than than the present uh, and they claim in this way to be merely reflecting the way that people actually think. But I'm not convinced that's true. Because I know many, many parents, for example, who will say, uh, and I think they mean it, that my children are desperately important to me. I would make big sacrifices for them. And of course, people do that. They, many, many parents across the millennia have made real sacrifices in the present for a better future for their children. Um, but, but economists, and economists in this way um, have been very influential on our governance. Um, literally, they quite literally discount the future. Uh, and the higher the discount rate, um, the more worthless um, the future compared to uh, the present. Um, that is a sort of gigantic kind of perverse incentive built into the very structure of, uh, of uh, virtually every political economy uh, in the world. Uh, so that's, at a high level, that's something I would love to <laughs> see changing. The discount rate should be abolished. The future should be regarded as just as important as the present, no less. Perhaps no more, but certainly no less. Um, but let me make one more point, and then let's go to uh, the, uh, the, the raised hands that we have. Um, 
it's also really important that we don't get overly focused on economic incentives um, for good or for ill. And what I'm getting at there is our society is terribly dominated by economics. Now, in response to that, it's very natural, and we should, we should certainly do this, to think carefully about, well, okay, how can we alter the economic incentives uh, in an intelligent way? But what I'm trying to say now is that so long as that's all that we do, we're still stay, staying too much within the game of business as usual and economics uh, as usual. Um, and actually, we really need to be loud and clear that there are many things in life which cannot be economically valued and that are more important than anything that can be economically valued. Uh, I'm sure that, that everyone knows the kind of thing I mean. I'm, classic examples are things like love. Uh, and it's literally absurd to think of love, love, actually the actual real thing being for sale. It, it's it's uh, it's incompatible uh, with that. Um, so we need to make sure that um, when we're talking politics, when we're talking philosophy, when we're talking uh, spirituality, uh, when we're talking art, um, when we're talking many of the things that really matter to us most. We don't just talk economics and we don't sort of make it sound as though everything can be reduced to numbers, everything can be reduced to money. It can't, and thank God it can't. One of the points there, is, and you know, I really appreciate that emphasis on not focusing exclusively on economics, and this speaks to the need not just for better incentives within this system, but really a whole new system with a new concept of uh, really what we are and what we're here to do. Um, so appreciate that. Uh, want to, as you said, move to the raised hand. So we'll have uh, Callan uh, and then your own and the others who put their hand up. Go ahead, Callan. Welcome. Hey, thank you for the welcome. Thanks for the talk so far. I've really enjoyed it. Um, yes, yeah, so as somebody who's like been peripherally interested in nature for a long time, um, and also interested in psychology and economics and all these things. I see a common thread that is a bit kind of under the radar from what I see from the current narrative of Institution Rebellion, for example. Um, it seems like we're prioritizing the CO2 thing disproportionate to the actual priorities that I think um, the ecology is screaming for, like, which is, I think we should prioritize trees, soil, and water. Um, and the CO2 thing is kind of like a, could be, leveraged to go tie in the hands of a materialistic consumerist economy by kind of set pushing electric cars pushing more consumption of a different format um, just like how veganism is starting to be corrupted by the processed food industry um, it, it's I, I feel like um, it's not how many people we are on the planet it's how we're living and, um, and I like how you touched on also about economic incentives and it's not everything but it definitely is part of the solution um and they're, they're very skewed in favor of like systemic kind of um polluting of the environment basically um but i do think it's a bottom-up approach as well and um it's, it's easy to be a reductionist to say things economic but at the same time our time and, and money is a form of energy and i feel like if you wanted to lose weight it's, it, you don't you don't want to exercise is more about what you're not doing so if you just don't eat food it's much easier to lose weight than having to force yourself to exercise for example um so i feel like yeah it's great to put our energy and money into like organic farming locally and um community work but i think the biggest 
um, thing we can do is stop our addiction to materialist consumption and just mindless kind of addictions like that. Just not buying things that are produced in other countries and produce a lot of like waste um, and pollution. Um, so that's, that's a big bottom up thing I, I believe in personally. Um, and I really like that you touched on this kind of um, parental paradigm. Um, I kind of see the world in, a, in like a psychological triage way, like a union analyst, like kind of like how everything can be brought down to like the, the mother, father, child relationship in some form. And it could be on any scale of analysis where it could be like the family unit or it could be even like political systems. They, they can oftentimes become like parents to us and a bit too invasive and stopping us as individuals um, the, the, the civilians from actually flourishing and becoming adults and taking personal responsibility. So I am a bit concerned about that also, this kind of um, trend, potential trend towards enforcing these um, draconian laws under the guise of economic, um, of ecological protection, but really it's more of a pathology of trying to control us in a kind of weird kind of parental um, complex where we, we get infantilized. Um, uh, so, sorry, I just threw a lot of stuff. At you yeah, guys, no, but, that's, that's really yeah. interesting stuff, Callum. I, I agree with uh, with the vast majority of what you said, if I understood it all, which I think I understood most of it. Um, and uh, yeah, fascinating stuff. So the, the point about energy, just briefly. Yeah, of course. Um, really, the way we do economics should be um, in a deep green ecological way, and there are a small number of economists, a growing number, who who do that. But the point I was making is that even if we do economics in that way, there are still and will always be things that cannot be and should not be subsumed uh, under the disciplinary heading of economics. What we don't want to do in trying to make um, um, economic incentives better and to make economics as a discipline better is kind of give the impression um, that economics um, uh, is the only game uh, in town. It's vital to the the human project, if you will, that we are diverse uh, beings and that much of what is most important to us simply cannot be understood by economics, however good your economics um, is. Now, um, on the points about um, biodiversity, habitats, ecology, and not just climate, very, very important. And I basically agree with you. When I was in Extinction Rebellion, uh, in, I was one of was one of those who was pushing for this for there to be more of an emphasis on um, ecology and not just a single-minded emphasis on climate climate is really the canary in the coal mine um, climate is is the worst current crisis so far as human beings are concerned but it is a symptom of a way of living of a civilizational paradigm which is um, rotten uh, and it is um, a pathological symptom among many other pathological symptoms um, in terms of how our ecosphere uh, is faring. You can see this quite clearly uh, if you want to by looking at the recent BBC programme, which I would recommend to people on breaking boundaries. This is the latest David Attenborough programme, uh, which I hope is now available all over the world, uh, which concerns the way in which we're rupturing our planetary boundaries. And the program makes the point very clearly that the climatic boundary is a very important boundary, but it is not the only one. It's one of many. And we are rupturing a, a whole load of them at the same time and set to rupture more of them unless we manage to undertake this 
unparalleled transformation that I've been trying to get at in this conversation with, with Elliot. So yes, it's not enough to talk about uh, carbon and climate. Uh, and in fact, even talking about climate is always much more than talking about carbon. And climate and biodiversity overlap so thoroughly that to look at, look at the Amazon, for example. Uh, the Amazon is, is hugely important uh, as um, a store of carbon. It's also hugely important as a store, if you will, of biodiversity. And it's hugely important in terms of the, uh, the water cycle uh, of, the, of the continent and to some extent of the earth. And it's important in terms of generating um, uh, oxygen. Um, it has multiple ecological importances and it can't just be reduced to a carbon store. It's very dangerous to so, to so reduce it. So, yeah, Extinction Rebellion and all other such organizations, and Extinction Rebellion has got a lot better at this, uh, by the way, uh, as it's evolved, um, need to be talking about biodiversity, I would say, just as much as about climate. Um, the, later this year, we've got the crucial climate COP in Glasgow, but there's a biodiversity COP happening uh, in China. That's also terribly important, and we need to get it up the agenda more. Sounds like there's a great need for broader education within movements themselves of the various, as you put it, climate boundaries we need to be conscious of. Donut Economics does a beautiful job of putting these forth in, in a very spreadable uh, kind of single image. Yeah, the various climate boundaries, but more broadly, the various ecological boundaries. And yeah, uh, Kate, Kate Rayworth, uh, Donut Economics, has, has done a, a, a great job of sort of popularizing some of this. Um, the original uh, scientific work, um, which you can find in this Breaking Boundaries BBC program, was done in part by uh, Johan Rockstrom and the Stockholm Resilience Institute. And they really study these, these various boundaries, these various... Um, what used to be called limits to growth. Yeah, I, Callan, I appreciate that that reframe that you know it's not just climate; it is ecology as more fundamental a uh, concern. Your own, welcome. Thank you, Elliot, and uh, thank you for having this room. Uh, it's very, it's very great. Um, uh, so I have. I had two thoughts with uh, a pending questions that I would like to share. So one is uh, um, when I personally think about change, then I kind of always think in this like the like the, the this co co cocktail of um, of fear and hope in the right dose, like in the right um, in the right balance uh, as a uh, yeah one of the things that's needed to, to kind of uh, make change uh, moving, make change happen. So, and I, I personally kind of sometimes uh, uh, um, in the face of very great uh, challenges like the, 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 the things that you are talking about and we are facing as a humanity, I sometimes feel this uh, paralysis and I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one. So, um, as in the work that you've done, like in the experience you've had over the decades, maybe you've seen maybe some antidotes to that paralysis that you've seen work really well. So I'd be very uh, curious to, to know about those. And the second thing is about, because I'm a parent too, I have three kids, so I feel uh, once that Elliot mentioned your book, I was kind of my ears uh, woke up and, uh, okay, I got to pay attention here. Um, and this tied to this notion of that the future is local. So 
uh, and I kind of feel a responsibility as a parent to to instill some some sense of hope for my children. So, um, like maybe there's things, um, maybe some good approaches to to make make things more local and simple uh, uh, that I could talk about with my kids or do with my kids uh, in a way to make them part of it in a kind of hope more hopeful ways so so one is about the antidotes of paralysis and the other one is the the small local thing so I'm more focused on the on my on the kids mm. thank you yeah thanks Jeroen uh, really really crucial questions I love them I'm going to try and sort of take them together because I think they can be taken together so um, in terms of the question of uh, uh, of hope there is always hope it's just that there's not hope for all the things that people always say there is. <laughs> so if your hope is, for example, that we're going to get to carry on as we are and avoid um, ecological collapse, then your hope is in vain. Um, but if your hope is uh, that we can uh, create a future which will be in many ways better than the present that we, that we have, that is possible. And even if you even if you sometimes don't feel strong enough to have that hope, at the very least you can hope to uh, you can always hope to uh, reduce suffering, um, to make the, the the present more um, authentic and uh, and real and uh, and meaningful. Um, so look, um, what I would say in terms of how to avoid paralysis is the, the thing to do always is to just find a way of, of starting. Um, so not to deny or suppress any of one's feelings. On the contrary, these feelings, including feelings of, of hopelessness, uh, of despair, of great grief, uh, of terror, all feelings that I've had, and I bet that nearly everybody in this, in this room has had around this uh, set of uh, issues. You let these feelings um, have their day, uh, and then you use them as fuel for for action and of course the action can be of all sorts so one really good thing to do which fits with what you were asking about and mentioning in terms of localism um is to join the uh, the relocalization movement which is in effect a, a global movement it, it's it's very sort of diverse and local as you would expect right it, it is contained in things like the transition towns movement it's present in in permaculture and people creating uh, farmers markets uh, so many things and then it's present more explicitly in organizations such as local futures which is a fantastic organization run by my colleague uh, helena norberg hodge uh, i strongly recommend getting involved with them if you really want to get you know sort of seriously involved on a larger scale as it were uh, uh, in that um and um Consider also um, taking uh, further uh, uh, steps. So I'll just tell you something about my experience with Extinction Rebellion, which is that uh, um, getting involved in terms of going on Extinction Rebellion protests, I found hugely empowering. It's incredibly empowering, for example, to walk with a load of people out into the middle of a street, uh, if it's a well-chosen street at a well-chosen moment, um, and, to, and to block it. Um, and to realize, oh my God, we can just do this. Uh, it helps you to feel a lot more liberated um, from uh, from the unnecessary constraints of having to always uh, obey the law. Um, you know, that's quite a full-on example, but it's a very real one. If you speak to anyone who's been on any nonviolent direct action, I bet you 10 to 1 they will say to you that it was one of the most empowering 
empowering and exciting experiences uh, of their of their life. And some of the um, some of the way in which at a, a protest by, say, Extinction Rebellion, you get to get the sense that you are experiencing a little bit of what life could be like and of what the future society will be like. That's also very real. Um, it's sometimes spoken of as a uh, as a regenerative culture or as a prefigurative uh, culture. And in my experience, these ideas are very, very real. So it's really a question of, of just doing something and getting started and, of course, potentially maybe involving your kids too. I know a lot of parents have... Uh, have um, found it quite powerful over the last few years supporting their children at uh, climate school strikes demonstrations. And those are going to probably be growing again now that the virus is diminishing in its uh, uh, savagery, it would seem. Um, so uh, there are some possibilities. And, and finally, I would just say again, of course, um, what I'm trying to say in my book, Parents for a Future, and, and do check it out on my uh, Clubhouse profile page or it's also the image of my own club, um, Climate Movement Strategies, that is the cover of the book. What I'm trying to suggest there is that it's really time now for parents to make sure that we don't just leave it to our children. Because leaving it to our children is an abdication of our responsibility. We have to, we have to stand up and be counted uh, now. So find your own way of, of doing that. And that itself will, will be a big element of how to dispel any paralysis. You mentioned the power and empowerment of nonviolent activism. I just wanted to recognize a, a powerful systems changer uh, who's come into the room, uh, Jay Nadu, who, who was actually on Nelson Mandela's uh, cabinet. And I appreciate you giving your own a specific example of, of something to do. And I think that's a really, you know, we're talking about parents for a future and, and uh, bringing people together as parents to to make change but within that is is the actual act of parenting and uh, our friend Stuart Williams who sent me a message had to leave the room but talked about you know how that can be how we raise our kids and what we raise them to think and do uh, is is a one of the most powerful forms of change just wanted to bring that in before we move to Sarah uh, Sarah welcome thanks so much Elliot Great to see you as always. Thank you for holding space. Excellent room. Rupert, thank you so much. A few reflections based on what you shared, which I found very um, touching. Uh, you know, I, I really appreciated your emphasis on economics isn't everything. I think a lot of the systems change rooms I end up bouncing around and just communities I end up networking within and working within. Um, there, there is a heavy perhaps overemphasis on economics as the lever for change. But uh, something that you made me think of was perhaps, and thinking about children, was the role of the imagination and how that children are so naturally, wildly imaginative and how the imagination and the narratives that we create, I think, are one of the most powerful forces of change. I was thinking about USA uh, when we decided to put a man on the moon, it feels as if that was almost the last time we had a collective 
imagination to do something that we perceive might be beyond our wildest dreams, but that would somehow advance our civilization, you know, and everybody rallied around it. And there was this beautiful iconography and all this great NASA imagery, like the power of visual art, the power of story, the power of narrative, everything was brought to bear. And there was this collective cohesion um, that took place. And I, I think sometimes the whole idea of what is the future that we want that's livable, that's desirable, is it's given that we're talking about all these different dimensions, as you said, the Stockholm Resilience Center. We're not just talking about um, biosphere um, integrity, you know, in one aspect. We're talking about it holistically. It's hard. We don't have a shared picture of that. So I was just wondering what your thoughts might be on the role of narrative and and any little glimpses of that that you've seen in children parents or um, any of your explorations thank you mm, thanks sarah i couldn't agree more uh my my own work in the area of uh, philosophy of film and literature has been a lot about this and and that work is i hope quite accessible you can see some of it on my profile page if you're interested basically what i believe is that quite a lot of popular texts especially films um are really in this uh, ballpark and are incredible potential uh, resources uh, and that we need more of them so examples of what i have in mind uh if you're talking about uh, so-called children's films then I would mention, um, for instance, um, uh, Wally and uh, Pocahontas. Um, among the films that I talk about in my book on this um, are uh, Avatar, uh, Gravity, uh, Never Let Me Go, uh, The Road, Apocalypto. These are films, I think, which are really in quite profound but also accessible ways, um, seeking to offer us uh, narratives that could move us from where we are to some to somewhere very very different but as i say we need more of these i think it's a scandal for example that very little really has been done in this area in television uh arguably still the greatest mass medium of our time and just show me you know where are the um where are the full-length uh, series about uh, climate and ecological emergency uh, on television in terms of fiction you know there have been some very good documentaries very very good we've talked a tiny bit about david attenborough here but you know that there really ought to be in-depth work going on that is uh that is artistic that is accessible that is moving that sketches to us how the future could be and what we need is we need to see how the future could be if things go badly and we need to see how the future could be if things if things go okay or even well that's hardly ever done um you know that if, if to tell me if i'm wrong anybody because but I've, I've researched long and hard in this area i just cannot find them so if it happens that there is anybody on this uh, call or anyone uh, uh, listening who uh, uh, is uh, an artist or a creative or involved in tv or whatever for goodness sake please uh, this is the, the the great task of our time in terms of imagination we need to imagine together how we could get through this and the resources that we have for that potentially uh, in the arts are, are huge. As I say, there are some great examples in film. There are some great examples in, uh, in literature. Ursula Le Guin, for example, comes to mind in, in literature. Um, but we need more and we need them in other media, such as TV, such as uh, music, um, such as video games. Um, 
please. It's uh, time is running out for these works of imagination. But yeah, I totally agree with you. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you so much. Such a brilliant point to wrap the room on and this idea of having aspirational narratives and stories in films, music, movie, uh, television shows are is so vital, uh, not only to, you know, Hollywood when it shows us the future is so often dystopian. Where are these aspirational futures, these visions of aspirational futures that we want to get to and ones that show the pathway to get there, uh, and even better, that allow us to plug into uh, a real-world movement. How often have we left the theater inspired, but then have nothing to do with that energy? So can we marry all of these together? And that that's actually been a big... I was happy you brought that up, Sarah, because that's been such a big uh, component of the, the thinking behind global unity. Um, Rupert, I thank you so much for today for everything you've done and are doing and for sharing this time with us and and sharing your story. Um, Any final thoughts you wanted to share before we wrap the room? Well, Elliot, look, just to say once again, thanks to you for hosting this wonderfully as you always do and to everyone who's uh, contributed. And and let me say, I'm quite a a busy guy. I get quite a lot done uh, and I'm quite proud of that. But you know, um, whatever I do, is part of a team and you don't always see that team and so you know it's got it's to do with my collaborators a lot of my work is collaborative i mean in terms of my writing let alone my activism uh, it's to do with my research assistants it's to do with the 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 groups that i'm a part of that have enriched so much of, of what i'm capable of doing when i am capable of doing it so for example we've we've talked a little bit about adaptation here i'm part of a collective the transformative adaptation collective and i owe so much to the many people in that for being able to to uh, to offer the the contribution to to system change that i hope i'm uh, offering so yeah i'd like to end on on that point that it's it's always if you will when you see me or listen to me here you're, you're seeing the the tip of a, of an iceberg, and I want to uh, do uh, do justice to the to the iceberg, and uh, and let's not melt it. I, am I starting to mix the metaphors now? You get the idea. Spoken like a true leader. Um, and I don't know. Uh, you mentioned adaptation. I don't know if you want to. We'll of course refresh people on where they can get uh, parents for a future. I don't know if you want to mention your your upcoming book or your newest book. Oh, yeah. So I think you're referring to the, the book I've just published on deep adaptation, uh, which is going one step further even, but, but also talks a lot about transformative adaptation. That's a book edited by myself and Jim Bendel with uh, Polity Press. Uh, you can also find that on my profile on Clubhouse. And uh, yeah, I'm very proud of that book. I hope that's going to be a major intervention, trying to really get the discussion about the possibility of, uh, of societal collapse from uh, ecological collapse uh, more centrally into our conversation so that we can prepare for it and I very much hope still prevent it. Here, here. Okay, well, thank you again so much uh, for everyone who suggests going to parentsforafuture.org. You can pick up a copy of the book. You can also pick up a copy of the ebook very affordably. Make sure to uh, you know not only grab one yourself, but share it with any parents. And as we've talked about in this discussion, we're all parents. 
Uh, so please, please support Rupert in that way. And uh, you can find out more about Rupert and, and follow his work at rupertreed.net. And this has been part of System Changer Spotlight, rather, has been part of Global Unity Radio. If you want to follow for further rooms that we run, you can hit the greenhouse at the top to follow the Global Unity Club. If you want to find out more about the movement and participate or find out more as more is being announced, you can head to globalunity.org. I think uh, without taking any time here, I think the, the spirit of it is, is something we all feel in our hearts and something Rupert, Rupert's definitely embodied in, in all of his work. So, And lastly, if you do have any folks you think are system changers like Rupert who've done incredible work that should be featured in future rooms of these, please let me know. Reach out either through Twitter or Instagram. And that I wanted to wish everyone a great rest of the week and rest of the day. And together we can we can build something better. So lots of love and light. Have a great rest of the day, everyone. Thanks, Elliot. Thanks, everyone. Love and trust. Bye.